Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. It's me, Simon Hughes, on my own today because Simon Mann is still wending his way back from South Africa from that brilliant three-match T20 series which England sneaked at the last. And Owen Morgan, what incredible hitting he uh, produced there. Seven sixes in that final innings, which took his sixth tally in T20 National, so over 100, 105 sixes by Owen Morgan to go with his 211 sixes in ODI cricket and just one little thing actually about his six hitting I've noticed is that firstly he holds the the bat very high up the handle so there's quite a gap between his bottom hand and the splice which just gives him that little bit of extra leverage and therefore distance very similar actually to the way Adam Gilchrist used to hold the bat and the other thing is he doesn't hit the ball miles over the rope. He just sort of hits it almost creeping over the rope for six, just enough to clear the fielders, mostly. And he keeps his shape when he hits the ball. He doesn't kind of throw himself off balance. It's just a lovely flowing movement, hitting it just enough to, to get the six rather than into the 18th row. You don't get any more for powering the ball onto the roof. And he really sort of does show the value of keeping control of your shot making, it did really underline the brilliance of that T20 format in England's victory. And I guess it's uh, shaping up well. They're shaping up well for the T20 World Cup in November in Australia. Okay, well, in this episode today, I'm investigating a rather dark and more mysterious but fairly topical subject mental health in cricket. With more and more money coming into the game and its continually rising profile, mental health seems to have become a bigger and bigger issue in cricket and sport in general. Your mental well-being is becoming almost as important, perhaps even more important, than your physical condition. In fact, mental health generally seems to have become a huge topic, especially in the workplace. Everybody seems to be suffering from stress of one sort or another. The almost intolerable pressures on high-profile personalities, 
the intense scrutiny, the incessant social media attention, the invasions on their privacy. Had a truly tragic context at the weekend with the Love Island presenter Caroline Flack taking her own life. It's a devastatingly sad story. I suppose it's partly a product of a general obsession with celebrity. Although no modern cricketers have gone to the drastic lengths that Caroline Flack did, it's a sport associated with suicide. Three players I knew well, including David Bairstow, of course, took their own life, and there have been many others over the years, actually over a 100. There is even a book about suicides in cricket written by David Frith, if you're of that sort of persuasion to, to read that kind of thing. We've had a number of recent cases of top players retiring from internationals or requesting a break for mental health reasons, the most high-profile of which, of course, was Australia's Glenn Maxwell in November. And we shouldn't forget either that the brilliant England women's player Sarah Taylor announced her retirement from the international game last September for the same reason. So I decided to try and find out exactly what the pressures on the modern players are, what are the symptoms of poor mental health and what are some possible cures. In the next few minutes, we'll hear from a leading coach, former Australian batsman Stuart Law, now in charge at Middlesex, a prominent player, the new Essex captain Tom Wesley, and two leading sports psychologists, both working in the professional game. Hopefully, they can make some sense of a complex issue. But first, a personal story. It's something like 25 years since I reported late to training at Lords for Middlesex. It was early season. In fact, it was the day of the photo call when all the press and photographers come and take your picture and the team poses with whatever trophies they might have won the previous year and you give a few interviews and stand for a few profile pictures and so on. Anyway, I was about an hour late and I had good reason to be an hour late. Everybody's saying, well, where the hell have you been? But actually, I'd been dealing with my wife's situation she had decided that she didn't love me anymore and that she was leaving for another man and so we sort of thrashed it out overnight and in the into the early morning to try and figure out the best way forward we parted and she left and went off to live with this other guy and I was obviously late for training and for this photo call and when I arrived everyone was saying well where the hell have you been why are you late again and for once I sort of reacted, instead of just apologising, I said, look, don't even start. My wife has just announced that she's in love with another man and she's leaving me. And so there was a bit of sort of silence and one or two people just kind of chuntering away. And then someone said, well, you're not exactly Richard Gere, are you? And, I mean, you look, I had to laugh in the end. that There was certainly no sympathy and there was no point in, in dwelling on it. But I think it, it pretty much did affect my season there was a feeling of sort of rejection and loneliness and occasionally probably depression I didn't have a very good season and in the end actually I was released by Middlesex at the end of that season now, I'm not blaming my ex-wife on that but there was no one really to talk to about it you just had to get on with the job and it's good that you know now the situation is totally different life has changed and these kind of things can be much more uh, better dealt with now, before I carry on any more of that sob story, uh, I thought we should move on to the modern day, and I thought Stuart Law would be an excellent person to kick off this discussion of cricketers' mental health, as, like me, he played in a less forgiving era under the captaincy of Alan Border in Australia and for Queensland. 
and he played plenty of county cricket too, and more recently has coached both the West Indies and Bangladesh national teams before taking over at Middlesex. He's got a good grasp on how the awareness of a player's mental state is more acute than it used to be. To think back um, when we played, it, it wasn't it wasn't common knowledge what we were we were going through. Um, if we had a, a stage in our our careers where we weren't scoring the runs we should do, we just thought it was a bad patch. You know, you're out of form. Um, but because of the obviously the the information now that has been gathered, um, the research that's that's been done on the subject, um, you know, I'm sure that at some stage we've all gone through. Uh, symptoms of or actually got it a little bit worse of, of mental illness um you know thinking bad um you know it's become too tough uh you know it's probably left a bit of a bit of a hole for, for us uh the older players but the the younger generation now growing up they're surrounded by fantastic people you got you know your sports psychologists you got doctors uh sports doctors um you've got anything you need uh and it's up to us as coaches now to to identify if a player is okay, um, which can be tough as well because sometimes players are a very closed book, um, but we utilise those other um, avenues we've got, the sports psychs, to work out a, a profile of character. When they're going well, this is how they behave. When they're going poorly, this is how they behave. Um, and you, you weigh it up and then you start asking questions. Is it the job of the coach to identify this or is it the job of the player to approach the coach with it? Look, I think it's a bit of both. Um, you know, I've, I've had dealings with some players in, you know, other teams where, you know, you, you sort of ask them the question, oh, are you all right? You know, is everything OK? How's, how's life at home? And they put up a they put up a front. They say, yeah, no, everything's good. And if they're normally the life and soul of a dressing room and, you know, up and, you know, the talkative one or the telling joke one, and they, they all of a sudden they sit in the corner and go on very quiet, you know, there's something completely wrong. Um but they're not the ones to come out. After a while, not in a in a group scenario, you might just say, "Let's go and have a let's go and have a coffee, sit down, and have a chat." And you know, I've had players that have just sat there and burst into tears. You know, and you go, "Right, okay, we've hit something." And then you can act, you can put things in place. Then you can say, "Right, this this player needs to see you know the doc, the psych, um, and there's a there's a um, process in place to help deal with that." But players are. Nowadays, they're more they're more willing and more open to come out uh, to come forward uh, with their issues, um, and we've just seen great great examples of that back home in Australia. With um, you know, Glenn Maxwell is the is the number one um, or the biggest player to to have come out and openly said it, which is you know fantastic work from Glenn, but also great work from Victoria and Cricket Australia to identify that he was going through some some issues that he didn't know how to deal with. So, as Stuart Law says there, there's clearly a lot more sensitivity to a player's mental condition than there used to be. But what are the pressures on the modern player actually like, and how are they affected by them? I thought I'd ask Essex's Tom Westley this, as he, of course, was piloted into England's problem number three spot in 2017, had a tough summer against the swinging ball propelled by a very potent South African attack, and was then dropped. He accepts he didn't perform as he'd hoped, but he still found his disappointment almost overpowering the following season. I asked him how he overcame it. The 2018 season was of it was a you know accumulation of like many low points really, um, and it actually got to the point where you know I, I actually sat down with Tendo, who's captain at the time and, and a close friend, and actually the head coach, um, 
Anthony McGrath, who's you know he's got a brilliant relationship with all the Essex boys, and I and I just said to him like, I'm struggling for like motivation here, um, and and a lot of and do you know maybe that wasn't you know that that might not always appear the smartest thing to do is go to the captain and go to their coach saying that I'm struggling to sort of get up for games at the moment, but it was testament to my relationship with them that I felt that I could could speak to them, and and do you know what, um, Max was like Antendo were, were outstanding. Uh, Max actually said to me he wished that I'd spoke to him a lot sooner because obviously he went through the same process of you know being dropped for England as, as many players do mm. and and I'm sure it affects everyone in, in different ways but for, for me because I've always tried to maintain a certain amount of like level-headedness and composure it was just a bit I just felt, and I said to Max, I just felt very deflated, and I felt deflated for quite a long period of time, actually. And it wasn't until I probably actually, you know, spoke about the subject with with Tendo and Max that it sort of alleviated a lot of a lot of the problems. Max suggested that I make a list of, you know, why I play cricket, um, you know, the, the positives, the negatives, and he said, "There's no, there's no negative." He's like, "If it's, if it's a something, you know, like if it's a." A financial reason or a it, to feed your ego you know whatever it is just just put it down and then you know once, once I started working through it getting a bit more structure uh practicing the way that I had been uh that what got me to England then obviously that I had a little bit more success on the field I finished that season the 28th season with a couple of hundreds which were if I'm being completely honest they didn't feel the same but it was still rewarding um but it was just that you know, almost going back to the beginning, like why do I play cricket? You know, because you know it's as simple as you know loving the sound of like missing the cricket ball, or whether it is like raising your back to your to your friends and family in the crowd for a fifty or hundred. But just actually maybe acknowledging all the positives as well as some of the negatives, I slowly started to regain that sort of that motivation and hunger. The media intrusion and scrutiny is certainly ramped up when you play international sport. It goes with the territory, I suppose, and the players have learnt to expect a greater level of interaction and comment. You try and ignore the negative stuff, of course, but it's not always that easy, as Wesley remembers. We were as prepared as best as you can with, with the England line set up. You know, we, we have meetings and we have, you know, some excellent coaches, Andy Flower, Graham Thorpe, and they, they give workshops on those sort of things. But actually, I think until you're in it, you, like, you don't really know how you're, you're going to cope. But, but one bit of advice that Graham Thorpe, I remember, spoke about was that if he knew that he'd played well, you know, he would maybe follow some of the media stories and, and boost his ego. And everyone knows when when you're doing poorly. But you know that you're going to maybe be getting hammered in the media, so you avoid it. So I tried to sort of follow that that mantle, but unfortunately I didn't really have much success, so I wasn't really getting much praise. Um, so I set out, obviously, to ignore all the media and, and stuff. But what what is tough is when some of your like closest friends and family, without realising, like say my mum, for example, can you believe what like Shane Warne said in the paper about you? I was like, well, actually, mum, I haven't looked at it, but then ultimately you do have a look at it. Bloody mothers, you just can't trust them, can you? But especially for the younger generation, a compulsion towards engaging with social media seems to only have a downside, according to Stuart Law. Sometimes you, you see the you see the players, the first thing they do at the end of a day's play, they go through their Twitter feed or, you know, some social media feed and, you know, there might be one, two, there might be a thousand saying how bad you are. You've got to deal with that. 
you know, and even though you think, well, I didn't have a great day today, yeah, yeah, that one's that's that one's right, yeah, this one's pretty funny. If you keep going through and keep reading them like people do, it's going to start playing on your mind. You know, you, you keep getting told you're not very good, you're going to start believing you're not very good. So it's a, it's a it's a tough world, mate. That, that in a in a sense that you're being scrutinised by you know the the people around you the people who are guiding your career, selectors, um, management, coaches, what have you, your teammates. Um, but then you've got the public perception and there's some, there's some horrible people out there, keyboard warriors who, you know, just sit there and say something without thinking thinking it through or not really caring about it, just want to get a reaction. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the reaction that they're getting these days is, you know, there's, there's some kids in some pretty serious trouble. I'd encourage any player who plays the game ditch your social media while you're a player trying to tell a kid to to delete all your apps off your phone and use your phone just for making calls and sending a text to you know your friends and family um that doesn't happen um so they don't take any notice well they don't because it's their it's their life isn't it we mm. they've grown up completely different to us um and i i get that now it took me a while i've got a, an 18 year old son who who goes through the same process, you know, comes home and he sits there and looks at his, you know, social media feed and, you know, that's that's what they do. Um, so you can't just switch that off. The trouble is, Twitter especially seems to become, as one paper commenting on the Caroline Flack case put it, a force for recreational cruelty. People sheltered behind their anonymity will say practically anything to get a reaction. While, of course, I'm not comparing the tweets I get to the level of abuse she often suffered... I have had my share of flack, like a few death threats, literally. People saying I should be sacked for things I said, being labelled as a total idiot. And comments like one guy who said after some analysis I did on TV that your opinion of what might have happened has no more relevance or authority than my mother-in-law's chihuahua. Nice, when you try and laugh it off. But it does get to you eventually, and I suppose make you begin to wonder if all this social media engagement is really worthwhile. OK, so we've heard from an international coach and a player about the issues affecting cricketers' mental well-being. I thought it was also interesting to talk to some psychologists who've worked in a number of sports, including cricket, who could perhaps identify why cricketers in particular might suffer from mental health problems. So to begin with, here is Andrea First, an Australian sports psychologist who works regularly with Surrey and was also closely involved with the Olympic gold medal winning GB women's hockey team, as well as various other international athletes. She thinks that one of the aspects that makes a top cricketer's life that much more mentally demanding is the time away from home. There are longer periods of time where particularly those that are involved in national duty and or uh, club and or franchise, their schedules are busy and they're away from home probably more than most athletes and outside their, um, you know, the, the comfort of the people that they would you know, spend time with, whether it be their own um, mentors, coaches, you know, it could be their family, friends, etc. Is that sort of a, an element of homesickness, partly? Um, I mean, there's definitely... I mean, definitely there would be athletes that, that feel homesick, but I think it's just also the fact that, you know, if, if it, people were asked to be in their workplace for let's say high 200s in terms of days a year 
and with rest days that are often spent with teammates um, or work colleagues and if you're in an office space I think most people would go that's that's a little different that's that's um that's different to being you know the extreme where it might be a you know probably not typical anymore but a nine to five where I'm you know sleeping in my own bed um eating meals with my family or friends or whoever might be consistently and and have a have a routine that's very comfortable and then and then you've got in addition to that the the anxiety around performance um, which is no different to any other sport um you know being in that environment and needing to you know compete and train well um you've got you know the eyes of your selectors and your teammates watching you um, pretty much 24 7 um so if you're in a hotel with your team then you know people aren't um just able to have breakfast without you know some eyes of staff watching them not necessarily every move they make but it's it's far from the confines of your own home where you can completely relax so so you're on you're on a lot if you understand what i mean by on like on as in mm. um yeah. you know if you think about your nervous system you're probably in that um potentially that fight and flight stage rather than rest and digest and, and that's the bit that we've got to teach athletes to do when they're away is to make sure they give back to themselves they have ways that they can recover disengage decompress all those sort of buzz terms they're lots of the things that we're working on um, you know with athletes particularly the ones on the road it's not that this is an issue for every player but particularly at the highest level it is the amount of travel and time away consecutively in addition to the fact that the the game itself um, particularly in, in the in the test form is long in duration so you can be out fielding for a long time bowling for a long time batting for a long time or you could be sitting watching for a long time so there's there's the ability to be able to um you know stay engaged and on because you definitely don't want people switching off while they're on camp you know away from training away from competition because they're there to do a job, but you also need to have that ability. It's almost like having different gears for different different parts of um, their life. Whereas, you know, when you drive it, you know, most of us, if you're driving the driveway or pull up the car at home and you're going to home, yeah, there might be a little bit of thinking about other people, but you can definitely relax and decompress a lot more. Is it a, 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 a more demanding sport to work in as a sports psychologist than than other sports for those reasons that you mentioned i think it's more that it's it's a sport that has traditionally been i guess quite social so it's it's professionalism is is kind of catching up the acceptance of what sports psychology is or what psychology is or what talking about their mind is or talking about mental health is like that is is probably lagging behind you know if i if i look at all the time i spent in golf they've welcomed sports psychology and psychology with open arms for many many years again there's still players that don't like it don't use it but it's more accepted and it's been more accepted for years so some good practical advice there from andrea first which i suppose could be valuable to manage stress in any walk of life not just cricket Sounds like she's a valuable asset to all those star players at Surrey. And I know Liam Plunkett found her very helpful when he was trying to deal with the rather more mundane realities of day-to-day life after the euphoria of winning the World Cup last year. Another Australian sports psychologist, Graham Winter, who was also a former first-class player, has written a book, Mindful Cricket, 
which explores how you create and get into an appropriate mindset to cope with cricket's unusual demands, which of course include that unique thing, for a batsman anyway, that you are only one tiny mistake or good ball or brilliant catch away from your day or match being over. In order to try to address you know, what is a game mindset, we looked at we looked at it from two angles. One was obviously the successful uh, players and the, the research around success, but we also looked at um, what the and we just ended up calling the enemies. What are the what are the things that cause you to not play so well? And they pretty clearly came out as a reactive mind, so being very reactive to the environment you're in and uh, emotions going up and down and. And so on. Second was um, being distracted, which is obviously your attention. Um, the third was then making things more complicated, and the fourth was being slow to adapt. And it was interesting when you looked at the athletes, and I'm sure we can all do it. When you when you look at the cricketers, for example, who play well, they 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 bring a clear mind, and a clear mind is composed, not reactive. You know, it's focused on the task now. It's not distracted. Um, it's simple in the sense that they will be focused on one thing, one task, next thing to do, and they'll be adapting. So to me, a lot of it is um, understanding what the things are. And I guess I learned this with Olympic athletes over the years, that it's not a case to some extent of trying to get it, what's, what's my perfect performance. It's trying to eliminate the impediments um, and then see what happens. So if we can develop the ability of the player to have a clearer mind, and I mean certainly most of the test cricketers, first-class cricketers I've worked with, when it all comes down to it, they will, when they talk about their best performance, will say, my mind was clear. And then when you ask them, what does that mean? They'll say usually two things, I was composed um, or at the right sort of energy level, and I was really just absorbed in the task. You watch a, an athlete and they're in control of their own space around them, their routines, their rituals, their actions, the pace they do things at. They're, they have a way of doing it. And the, you know, like a Steve Smith will do it differently to a Joe Root, but they will have a way of owning their space and it's consistent. So that was Graham Winter, who's also worked with Olympic athletes as well as cricketers, and much of his book is focused on how to get into that calm, composed state, he calls it a sort of cocoon, to be able to perform at your best. Interestingly, a problem he identifies with cricket is that there's a wild disparity between the practice facilities, i.e. the nets, which can be quite claustrophobic and unrealistic, and the playing environment, in other words, the pitch. I think one of the most telling issues with cricket is that there are not many sports that have such a difference in the competitive environment so in other words out in the middle on a cricket ground and the practice environment which we see in the nets um, and I don't believe that coaches come to grips with that very well uh, yeah for example we were running some um, some match simulations in some nets last week and the, the senior coach knew what we were doing was thinking this is fantastic two or three or two other coaches were quite concerned the players weren't facing enough deliveries and came over and said, look, you know, we need three bowlers in this net. And we said, well, what we're doing is we're replicating match conditions. And they said, yeah, yeah, but the batsmen need to be hitting more balls. And we go, well, hang on a minute. We've got the bowlers bowling in six ball increments. We're having the batsmen practice their routines as they would in a game. Why do you want to now deliver three times the number of deliveries that they would get in the game? Uh, They said, well, they they need to feel bad on ball. And I think cricket coaches are struggling with this concept of how do you create a practice environment where yes you want some time to do 
uh, net practice in its traditional sense of bat on ball or bowling a lot of deliveries, but you also want some time to practice how you own your space and how you hold your shape. Um, and I, I think that's one piece of it. Um, and then I think the second piece is culturally cricket still. Yeah, you know, I look at even the first class teams here. They do not have. When you look at their program and say, "Show me your program for the week," they do not have anything that is around mental skills, mindfulness, or so on built into their weekly routine. You would not find an Olympic team that hasn't got that. So I think there's there's both the physical environment. We're not going away from the nets, but we can use them better. And the, yeah, we're doing some work with uh, with Root Academy here in Australia with their high performance program. They've got a great setup here where they run a lot of that um, simulated drills and developing what I'd say is they're practicing how to play cricket. They're not just practicing how to hit a cricket ball or bowl a cricket ball. So Graham Winter implying there that Joe Root's academy is thinking very broad-mindedly about how they're developing players for the future. And if there's one thing that makes Joe Root stand out from the crowd, apart from his skill, of course, it's his generally relaxed posture and obvious love of the game. He's always smiling, well, mostly anyway, and he seems to rarely forget how much fun it is to be a cricketer. It's a wonderful life overall, a privilege to be playing such a great game and be paid for the pleasure. And that is Tom Westley's coping mechanism and overriding message. I've always said to myself, like, if the day that I actually do view this as a job is probably the day that I shouldn't be playing anymore. I think we're, it's, we're blessed with the lifestyle that it gives you, the countries that you get to see and the friends and uh, experiences that you get to go through is why. It's that there are a lot of the things that I put down as positives for for being a cricketer you need to and i think this is where Essex have been so successful is is actually buying into something like bigger than just just yourself i know graham gooch speaks a lot about it's not always i know he scored obviously thousands and thousands of runs but he wants to remember of how many games of cricket he won how many games cricket he won for essex or for england and i think that's because as a batsman, you know it's very easy to be perceived as selfish i think if you can be a selfless cricketer and be and and hopefully look back on your career having won things rather than averaging five more and having won nothing. I think that's a much better and healthier mentality to have for not only yourself but for the team. I was fortunate that I I studied a bit of this. Well, my dissertation revolved a little bit around it in cricket, and one of my best friends also did a dissertation in cricket into suicide, which was quite a hard to read piece and a lot of it focused around your identity um, and a lot of people I think cricketers in particular you know they create their identity because of their profession they're a cricketer so I think if you can accept that you're a cricketer and it's a great job and it's brilliant but actually have things outside of cricket enjoy other people's success and try and be level-headed I think that helps your sort of mental well-being and health. Great attitude from Tom Wesley. Sounds like Essex have chosen their new captain well. Should be fun watching them this season. So I hope that's given you some insight into the mind of the modern cricketer and the pressures they have to deal with. I guess my two main takeouts would be develop an interest outside the game. Mine was always writing, actually. And turn that phone off. There's more on this subject in the forthcoming issue of the Cricketer magazine, including an interview with the former Derbyshire and Lancashire wicketkeeper Luke Sutton, whose recently published book, Back from the Edge, recounts traumatically how he was in the Priory Rehab Clinic, age 35. You can subscribe at www.thecricketer.com forward slash subscribe, 
And we also have an exclusive interview with ECB Chief Executive Tom Harrison talking about the future of Test cricket and the likelihood of new city teams in the 100 in the near future. And in the next podcast, later this week, we'll have some extracts from that interview. And if you like this podcast, please review it on iTunes or recommend it to a friend or send us your thoughts on mental health in cricket to theanalystpodcast at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. And thanks very much for listening. Speak to you later in the week. Podcast Network.